This is Guns and Butter. I think the more fundamental point was to create a war in the heart of Europe was seen by certain people in Washington around around Bush and later Clinton as a very good way to say Europe can't handle it. We have to have NATO. And that's indeed what, what took place in the 90s. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, F. William Engdahl. Today's show, Fake Democracy, the CIA and their NGOs target China and Yugoslavia in the 1990s. William Engdahl is an international political analyst and author. Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics and the New World Order, Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, The Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the control of oil, food, and money. Today we discuss his new book, Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance, with an emphasis on China and Yugoslavia. William Engdahl, welcome back. Well, Bonnie, I'm glad to be back with you and to talk further about my new book, Manifest Destiny, Democracy is Cognitive Dissonance. According to your book, Manifest Destiny, 1989 was the year George H.W. Bush was sworn in as president and early in that same year decided to launch a total assault on the flailing communist regimes from Moscow to Beijing to Belgrade. Were the student pro-democracy protests in China in Tiananmen Square in the summer of 1989 spontaneous? This was part of what you just described, and, and the striking thing that uh, that I realized as I was researching the book is that the Bush administration, the National Endowment for Democracy, the, the fake democracy NGOs that had been created under Reagan and, and Bush in the 80s, were deployed simultaneously in 1989 in Russia, or the Soviet Union, and, and the Warsaw Pact, in China, and in Yugoslavia. And the idea became very clear to me was to simply bust open the entire part of the world economy that had been off limits uh, or very much under control, uh, looting terms to the Western multinationals and banks. So they activated these these uh, Washington uh, so-called democracy NGOs in all three places simultaneously. What can you tell us about George H.W. Bush's different involvements with communist China? He went back quite a ways with China, didn't he? Yeah, well, uh, Bush had been the ambassador to China earlier, before he became vice president and then president. And uh, he had a, a very special connection to, to uh, so-called liberal circles, in the Chinese Chinese Communist Party Central Committee, and was trying to influence them in a certain direction. 
Zhao Ziyang among them. Well, how was the U.S. able to influence economic policy in communist China? Who, who was this uh, Zhao Ziyang? Uh, well, he had been a governor in Sichuan province and had been responsible for limited agriculture reforms that created a, a boom in food production. And that came to the attention of Deng Xiaoping, who was the supreme leader at the time. And uh, Zhao was made by Deng to be the architect of the pro, pro-market changes that came after 1979 in China, the opening up to the West, if you will, that had been uh, begun under Nixon and, and Henry Kissinger. And uh, it seemed like uh, this was bringing a lot of positive economic development for China up until 1979. Uh, Now, what's not clear is whether uh, Zhao Ziyang was simply gullible and was influenced by promises from uh, Bush and from people in in Washington and and so forth and thought naively that uh, they wanted everything good for China rather than everything good for their U.S. uh, special interests. Who was U.S. ambassador to China at the time of Tiananmen? Well, this is this is a really crucial figure, and and uh, I say in the book, and I document this, that James R. Lilly was the point person orchestrating the Tiananmen Square. You asked if this had had been a spontaneous student demonstration. It wasn't, but the the entire student protest was orchestrated by Gene Sharp, the founder of the Albert Einstein Institution, who wrote this famous handbook, From Dictatorship to Democracy, and developed nonviolence as a weapon of warfare. Uh, And Gene Sharp's handbook has been used in every color revolution or every NGO, you know, pro-democracy destabilization that the CIA uh, has, has run up until the present. So, these people were brought in. George Soros had a foundation for the opening of, of China. And uh, so he was involved in that. And the National Endowment for Democracy, the uh, International Republican Institute, John McCain's uh, offshoot of the NED. So they were all over the place in China just at the time that the students began calling this protest. The funny thing about the protests is the fact that that the uh, the demands of the students were anything but uh, revolutionary. This, this was not something you were doing to uh, when they started these hunger strikes in May. That came, by the way, from the textbook of, of Gene Sharp and the Albert Einstein crowd. But they, uh, the student leaders called, called a hunger strike on Tiananmen Square, and they published a manifesto. And uh, I'll read you the, the protest demands of the students, saying, we are doing a hunger strike, risking, you know, starving yourself to death, presumably, to, quote, protest the government's indifference to student demonstrations, to protest the government failure to enter a dialogue with students to protest the government's unfair characterization of the student democratic movement as turmoil, 
and they their requests were for an immediate equal dialogue between government and student. So this 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 was not a to the death uh, mass protest, but because of the hunger strike and because of the fact that uh, Mikhail Gorbachev of the Soviet Union came in in this same time on a state visit, the hunger strike was timed to coincide with that so that all the world media would be in Beijing. And there was a mass phenomena where it grew to something between three and five million students uh, gathering in Beijing and, and elsewhere. So this was taking on a life of its own and uh, was becoming really something uh, unmanageable for the Communist Party, for the Beijing leadership. And on top of that, you had uh, workers from the countryside that had come to the city to, to find work and, and get money to send back. So they were joining protests in, in uh, different factories on the outs outskirts of Beijing. So you had really a, a, an alarming situation and, and forced the Communist Party to declare martial law and bring some 300,000 soldiers to Beijing. So this was James Lilly, U.S. ambassador and the former 30-year-long veteran of the CIA together with George Bush Sr. And Lilly was also, as, as George Bush Sr., a member of a bizarre secret society at Yale University called Skull and Bones, which ironically was founded by the Russell family, one of the unknown oligarchic families of the, of the American establishment, who made their fortune in the 1800s through opium trade with China, you know, flooding China with opium. So I don't want to divert from Tiananmen Square, but, but this was, uh, in fact, a completely synthetic staged uh, protest. And, and because there's so many students in China, it, it took on a life of its own. 1983 seems to be an extremely pivotal year that marks the establishment of three extremely important NGOs, the National Endowment for Democracy, George Soros's Open Society in Budapest, Hungary, and Gene Sharp's Albert Einstein Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, all founded while George H.W. Bush is Reagan's vice president and while William Casey is CIA head. Let's take yeah. a look at the Albert Einstein Institute. What did it have to do with Albert Einstein? Nothing. <laughs> and Gene Sharp said as much once in an interview. He just took the name to give it a little bit of scientific credibility. But uh, the creation of these uh, private NGOs, this privatization of the CIA to do regime change, was part of a very, and the reason I wrote the book is it's very, very poorly understood how sophisticated the U.S. intelligence created these these so-called private NGOs, the National Endowment for Democracy, the In International Republican Institute of the NED, and the various other spin-offs, uh, the Soros Open Society Foundations uh, that you mentioned were created at the, the same time, and also the Gene Sharp Institute. And they refined this with social media. They had the RAND Corporation, the Pentagon think tank, 
developing techniques of so-called swarming, like swarms of bees. And they studied great military leaders from Genghis Khan to Alexander the Great to to, uh, Napoleon. And their military tactics all involve some application of these swarming techniques that you can monitor with with insects and and, uh, birds and so forth. So they developed social media uh, as as this was later developed in the, in the uh, early part of the 21st century, they developed Twitter, Facebook, and so forth to refine this and coordinate this. So 1983 was a crucial year. It was uh, the beginning of, of putting this in place. And uh, to return again to Tiananmen Square, uh, I don't know if you want to finish with that, but one thing I would like to add is there was never a student massacre at Tiananmen Square in June of 1989. There were never mass shootings of Chinese students. Jay Matthews, a a prize-winning U.S. journalist who later worked with the Washington Post, was present in June at Tiananmen Square. And he said in an article for the Columbia Journalism Review years later, As far as can be determined from available evidence, no one died that night in Tiananmen Square. A few people were killed by random shooting in streets near the square. These were workers who got pretty angry and hotted up uh, against the the government for various reasons. But all eyewitness accounts say the students who remained in the square when troops arrived were allowed in the middle of the night to leave peacefully. So James Lilly didn't allow this to be reported to the to the Western media. He engineered fake news to claim that he went to hospitals and visited wounded uh, students and uh, estimated that there were 200 or 300 students that were shot by soldiers and, and all these things. So of course the international media picked that up and sanctions were applied against China and so forth because the whole opening up uh, that had been planned as part of this Tiananmen Square destabilization by by the democracy NGOs of Washington, the Chinese government had clamped down on that. They they did not allow it to go further the way that Yeltsin and company were allowed to do in, in the Soviet Union. I'm speaking with scholar and author William Engdahl. Today's show, Fake Democracy, the CIA and their NGOs target China and Yugoslavia in the 1990s. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that on June 3rd, events reached a climax. Western journalists and select student leaders began reporting to Western media that the Chinese People's Liberation Army had begun a massacre of students at Tiananmen. Then, on June 4th, Tiananmen Square was peacefully cleared of student demonstrators. Deng uh, Xiaoping wanted no deaths from the breaking up of the protests. So, So then, would you say that the massacre of students in Tiananmen Square is a case of fake news about a fake massacre? Yeah, as as I said, it's it's one of the great fake news uh, frauds that have been promoted by the U.S. government and U.S. intelligence. And James Lilly played the key role in in spreading that. 
Voice of America, uh, you know, was was involved, and that's a U.S. government propaganda agency. And they simply kept repeating this lie over and over and over again. But uh, the students weren't machine gunned down by the military. They were, as you as you said, uh, Deng Xiaoping said, there cannot be student massacres. That that will be disastrous. We cannot allow that. So they were, despite provocations, they were given orders not to shoot. And then they reached a deal in the middle of the night with the student leaders to peacefully allow the students to leave in, uh, in the darkness of night, which is what happened. And I've talked with Chinese, uh, a number of Chinese uh, in visits there who confirmed this, that this was what happened. And what was Operation Yellowbird? Well, this was James Lilly's operation to smuggle out the uh, the key, it's a CIA operation, underground network to get uh, get the key student leaders who were being encouraged by the CIA and U.S. government. Uh, maybe they thought in their heart of hearts that they were, uh, you know, bringing democracy to China, but they were actually uh, doing the dirty work of the CIA, in fact. So Lilly and, and the U.S. Embassy gave them sanctuary, the key student student leaders, and then had this underground network to smuggle them into Hong Kong, which was then still British. And then the key leaders were flown to Paris, onto the U.S. Some of them were admitted to Harvard, some of them to Princeton, some of them went to work for the Bain and Company consulting department. But they were given a comfortable time of it for, for their services to, to the U.S. Embassy. With regard to Gene Sharp's book, From Dictatorship to Democracy, A Conceptual Framework for Liberation, you write that Gene Sharp was the architect of the CIA's strategy of nonviolence as a weapon of warfare. According to your book, Gene Sharp and his second-in-command were actually in Beijing during the mass student democracy protests. Isn't that right? Yes. And uh, they were in Tiananmen Square area two weeks before the protests, uh, the hunger strike began. And hunger strike is one of the key tactics that uh, Gene Sharp uh, describes in his handbook. So, and Robert Helvey, Colonel Robert Helvey, a U.S. military veteran, who's the key trainer for Gene Sharp's uh, Einstein Institute. And... uh, they were on the scene until the Chinese security police forced them to leave. The same, by the way, with Soros. The head of the uh, Soros China Foundation, Foundation for the Opening of, of China, was arrested, called in, and, and uh, uh, forced to close down the... Soros was forced to close down his uh, NGO, his China operation there at the time of, of the protests. Right, so the Chinese Communist government put a stop to all of this, and they threw all these guys out of China, in, including Soros's fund for the reform and opening of China, uh, Gene yeah. Sharp, and his crew. What about the National Endowment for Democracy? Did they get them out of China, too? That, uh, I, th- I think they, I don't have any evidence that they forced them out of China, but uh, Maybe that that was more difficult for them to 
uh, to crack or to, to figure out, I don't know. But uh, in fact, they accused uh, Soros's China Foundation of uh, cooperating with the CIA. So that's an actual concrete instance where, where China, uh, where Soros and the CIA are, are named. Do you think that the term non-governmental organization NGO is really an oxymoron, seeing as how the most powerful NGOs are funded by the U.S. government? Well, I would I would uh, not make a blanket statement, but I would I would certainly say about certain human rights and democracy, quote unquote, NGOs uh, that. That is an oxymoron. They're very much government front operations. Uh, but there's been a weaponization of human rights and the weaponization of, of democracy NGOs uh, by the CIA, by U.S. intelligence, by the State Department over the past uh, 35 years or so since the NED was created in the 80s, which you mentioned earlier, uh, Bonnie. And, and uh, this has proven to be for for the U.S. Uh, government and U.S. intelligence one of the most effective weapons to get rid of leaders and governments that don't sing to the music that Washington wants to hear. So uh, it's 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 a weaponization of human rights and democracy NGOs. I would describe it. Not all NGOs are are fronts for for the CIA or the government by by a long shot, but those. Those particular ones certainly are. And that's what I describe in the book. You begin your chapter, Washington and their NGOs disintegrate Yugoslavia, with the subheading, The Threat of an Independent EU. Did the U.S. consider an independent Europe a threat? And if so, why? This is one one of the things that is very poorly understood. In, in the end of the 1980s, 1989, around the time that Tiananmen Square and the uh, breakdown of the Soviet Union and, and the Yugoslav War was begun, the U.S. economy was in horrible shape. It was in a, a earlier real estate crisis meltdown, an oil crisis, oil prices had collapse of Texas and oil states like Texas were in very bad economic shape and the banking system. So at that point, Europe was beginning to create a, a new cohesion, a new strategy that people in Washington began to see as a potential threat. And they, uh, couldn't accept the idea of an independent Europe. So certain European leaders were talking about Europe independent of NATO, that with the Soviet Union gone, you know, collapsed in the early 90s, that there was no longer a need for U.S.-controlled NATO, and Europe was coming together uh, with technology, with economy, with the gross domestic product, with Germany's uh, economic power. So some people in Washington saw that Europe could begin asserting its own its own identity in a way after after the end of the Cold War. So that wasn't uh, greeted with joy, certainly not by George Bush and this intelligence community around him. 
You note that 1989 was also the year the Berlin Wall came down. People thought the Cold War was over and that the Soviet Union was no longer considered a threat, which you have just pointed out. Could you explain what the Maastricht Treaty was all about? It included a common European defense that was not NATO. Isn't that right? Yes. Uh, The Maastricht Treaty was the treaty that created a single European currency uh, with the European Central Bank, and it also called for a common European foreign policy and a common European defense pillar, as it was called. And uh, that was something that that was uh, really not welcomed in Washington, to put it bluntly. Now, you write in your book, Manifest Destiny, about a war in the heart of Europe. And of course, at this point in time, and George H.W. Bush is president, Things have calmed down. People are expecting a peace dividend. Why was a war in the heart of Europe a desired strategy for U.S. hegemony? Well, there are many reasons, but I think the Yugoslav, we're talking about Yugoslavia and, and the way that that was yes. broken up over the, over the course of the decade of the 90s. And there were a number of reasons. One, one of them was that Yugoslavia had a, a mixed economy. It was a communist country with a mixed socialist and state and and uh, private uh, model. It wasn't pure top-down uh, central planning like like in uh, Moscow. So that had a certain success that uh, that certain people in Washington did not want to see Russia and other you know, former communist countries adopting the so-called Yugoslav model. I think the more fundamental point was to create a war in the heart of Europe was seen by certain people in Washington around around Bush and later Clinton as a very good way to say Europe can't handle it. We have to have NATO. And that's indeed what, what took place in the 90s. Well, now you have pointed out the fact that uh the United States, in and around 89-90, was in poor economic shape. What kind yes. of economic shape was Yugoslavia in around the same time? We talked in our last show about the oil crisis of 73-74 and again in 1979 as being contrived and how that oil crisis led to Poland's debt. Is the same mm-hmm. true of Yugoslavia? Yugoslavia had to borrow dollars to to get enough oil to run their economy. So shortly before you know the breakup of Yugoslavia in, in the end of the 80s, they had more than 20 billion dollars in foreign debts, and that was so much that half of half of the country's uh, hard currency earnings were for debt service on on those borrowings, and. Keep in mind that a lot of that was borrowed in, in the 70s. But then when Paul Volcker came in in 1979 through 82, the U.S. raised the interest rates on, on those dollar debts in the world economy by 300%. So countries like Yugoslavia were suddenly caught in a, a debt trap. So the country's economy was 
really vulnerable because of this of this foreign debt. And then the International Monetary Fund was brought in uh, from Washington, the US controlled International Monetary Fund was brought in to uh, dictate how to uh, deal with that debt. And that that is what destroyed Yugoslavia's economy and created this breakup. Yes, that seems to be the same the same history with all of these former communist or socialist countries. I'm speaking with scholar and author William Engdahl. Today's show, Fake Democracy. The CIA and their NGOs target China and Yugoslavia in the 1990s. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The IMF made loans to Yugoslavia during the two global oil crises of the 70s, which you just mentioned. The debt was then used to cripple the economy. The IMF prevented the Yugoslav government from obtaining credit from its own central bank. Therefore, it was unable to finance social and other programs. They dollarized the Yugoslav economy. You also write that the IMF ordered a wage freeze at 1989 levels while inflation skyrocketed, yeah. uh, all of which you've, you've pretty much gone over. You write that the 1991 U.S. Foreign Operations Appropriations Act was the match that lit the fuse for war in the Balkans under George H.W. Bush. What was this act? Well, this was the Foreign Operation Appropriation Act of 1991, and it demanded, in order to get U.S. financial support, and at a time when they were, uh, you described the economic conditions, the uh, IMF was ordering uh, privatization of state enterprises, and companies were going bankrupt under the price liberalization and wage freeze, and uh, you know, it's just a horrendous economic situation. And this new law by the U.S. Congress, which nobody talks about, uh, demanded separate election in each of the six Yugoslav republics, uh, Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Serbia, and so forth. And in effect, that uh, Congressional Foreign Operation Appropriation Act forced the breakup of Yugoslavia. And uh, they said only groups defined by the U.S. State Department as democratic forces would get U.S. money. So you had all of a sudden U.S. money going to tiny right-wing nationalist parties and uh, the whole Yugoslavia suddenly was warring in six different directions, uh, each against the other to, to get the you know, the best conditions they could for this. So the U.S. was able to affect the breakup of Yugoslavia into these uh, uh, separate states by withholding the money unless they conform to certain conditions. Now, right-wing and fascist organizations, not seen since the defeat of the Nazis, as you write about, had been covertly maintained in exile by the U.S., Britain, and NATO, and they were the ones receiving U.S. funds and arms, right? Yes, yes, and uh, some of them were pretty pretty nasty. 
the uh, memories of, of World War II, where you had in Croatia the Ustashi, they ran concentration camps, which even the Nazis were shocked by. One of the most famous was Jasenovac. So when you had uh, Croatian separatists uh, beginning to harken back to, the, to this uh, World War II uh, experience, you, you created complete panic in uh, Serb and other parts of the population. The CIA really did some ugly things in Yugoslavia. So Bush decided to bring in the Mujahideen terror war model into Yugoslavia after the collapse of the Warsaw Pact in 1991. You write about this. What did bringing the Afghan Mujahideen into minority Muslim Bosnia-Herzegovina entail? Well, it entailed bringing Osama bin Laden personally uh, into Bosnia-Herzegovina. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that at the time the war began between Serbia, between Bosnia-Herzegovina, between Croatia and so forth, in the early 90s, Bosnia-Herzegovina was evenly divided, you know, one-third, 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 between ethnic Croats, between Muslim Bosniaks, and between Orthodox Christian Serbs. And, you know, you had uh, intermarriages between uh, Muslim Bosniaks and and, uh, Catholic Croatians in in Bosnia-Herzegovina. But the U.S. manipulated the situation such that the uh, political control fell under someone that they had sponsored, Itzabegovic, who was a Bosniak Muslim. And Itzabegovic went back to World War II and the Nazi SS Hanchar division, a division of Bosnian, Bosnian Muslims, that was set up during during the war uh, to fight for the Nazis against Serbs and Jews and Gypsies in, in Yugoslavia. Well, then, what was the Lisbon Treaty of March 18, 1992, between all three leaders of Bosnia-Herzegovina? Like you've talked about, you've mentioned the Catholic Croats, the Bosnian Muslims, and Orthodox Christian Serbs. Wasn't the presidency of Bosnia-Herzegovina was supposed to revolve, Right. Yes, it was supposed to rotate between those three ethnic groups. Now, you've written that the United States ambassador to Yugoslavia, this guy Warren Zimmerman, asked this Itzabegovic to renege on this, right? Yeah, well, that's Begovic had signed the agreement along with the leadership of the uh, Srpska, Srpska is what it's called today, the Srpska Republic, and uh, also with the Croatian. And uh, Zimmerman flew in and convinced Itzabegovic to uh, tear up the agreement and, and declare himself the president. In effect, that's what happened. In your book, you write that um, Ruder Finn, a Washington PR firm, worked on behalf of Itzabegovic. Uh, yes. And that... Serbia and Serbs were demonized and called Nazis. How was calling Serbs Nazis the height of irony? Well, uh, this Ruder Finn PR operation that Itzabegovic uh, was linked up with, and I 
think that was a very carefully done operation from the State Department. They boasted about the fact that nobody in, in the United States knew what was going on in Yugoslavia. They were completely baffled if they were interested at all. And uh, as, as the head of Ruderfin said, uh, most Americans probably thought uh, Yugoslavia was some African country or Bosnia. So then they decided to go after the support of U.S. Jewish organizations to turn them against the Serbs. Now, that wasn't so easy for Jewish organizations that knew anything about the true history of World War II because the Croatian fascist Ustashi during World War II and the Bosnian Muslim Waffen-SS Hanchar Division carried out atrocities against the Jews during the Second World War and not Serbs. The Serbs were not doing such things. So they seized on an article in Ruder Finn, the PR firm of, of Itzabegovic, they seized on an article in the New York Newsday uh, newspaper about detention camps uh, that Serbs had uh, for prisoners uh, who were fighting against the Serbs. And the New York Newsday called them concentration camps. So, of course, those words are electric for Jewish organizations, and, and most people associate concentration camps with the Nazis, Auschwitz, and so forth. So they use that to win the alliance of the Jewish organizations across America, and the press picked up on that and started talking about Serbs carrying out ethnic cleansing, concentration camps, and the images of Auschwitz, and so forth. So it was an emotional change, and that began the demonization of, of the Serbs. Really a, a tragic and, and a horribly one-sided uh, demonization that took place. You point out that the Srebrenica region in Bosnia was a safe haven for Muslim fighters who savagely slaughtered Serbian Christians in Srpska, the Serb part of Bosnia. Who was Nasser yeah. Oric? Nasser Oric was, was the military leader in charge of the Bosnian Muslim forces in Srebrenica. And most people today associate Srebrenica with a Serb massacre of innocent uh, Muslim civilians in, in that uh, enclave, safe haven, UN safe haven. But in fact, uh, Nasser Oric was uh, really one of, one of the unindicted or un unconvicted war criminals of, of the whole Yugoslav civil war is what it began as. Uh, he would launch attacks. He would use the UN secure status of Srebrenica and then from there have hit and run attacks during Christian Orthodox holidays of the Serbs and would destroy entire villages, massacre all inhabitants, men, women, and child, and create such a hatred, uh, you know, between uh, Bosniaks and, and uh, Serbs that it was unbelievable. So he was a warlord, a terrorist, and uh, one of the most horrific. He wouldn't take prisoners. He said, uh, one can't be bothered with prisoners, kill them. 
So he was one of the leading military people under Itzabegovich, Bosnian uh, Bosniaks. Well, now, Orich led the Mujahideen, and in your book, I was amazed to see how many countries in the Middle East were sending in fighters to fight the war. I, I never realized that it was so many fighters that went in there, and of course, in your book, you point out somebody uh, actually saw Osama bin Laden several yeah. times in Itza Bogovic's office right there yeah. in uh, Sarajevo. Well, what was the Srebrenica massacre, and what was the role of U.S. media giants, the New York Times, CNN, and other media, with regard to this massacre? This is, I would say, one of the most sensitive and one of the most emotional uh, events of that tragic 10-year-long war in Yugoslavia. Orich, as I said earlier, was uh, leading these savage attacks on on small Serb villages around Srebrenica and creating this enormous revenge uh, uh, attitude among the Serb population against against Orich and, and the uh, you know the Bosnian uh, terrorists that he commanded. So the Serbs were about to go after Orich in Srebrenica. But he had secretly pulled his jihad troops out of Srebrenica several days before it fell. And Bosnian Serb Army Commander uh, Mladic, who was recently, uh, to my mind, unjustly uh, condemned by, by The Hague, was led into an ambush, a trap in Srebrenica. Uh, he expected to find resistance, to, you know, to find Orich's savage troops there, and there was no resistance. And suddenly his soldiers just went berserk. And uh, the general Philippe Morillon, a French, described this and what Orich has done. And he said, uh, I don't believe that Mladic ordered the massacre. Uh, it was my personal opinion. But uh, the Serbs, you know, his troops just, just went crazy and started not killing women and children, but shooting the men that they could, uh, they could find in, you know, in and around Srebrenica. And uh, Nasser Orich, probably with help from the CIA, set up this trap to demonize uh, the Serbs. And that uh, was very effectively done by NATO propaganda. I'm speaking with scholar and author William Engdahl. Today's show, fake democracy. The CIA and their NGOs target China and Yugoslavia in the 1990s. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What was Operation Deliberate Force? Operation Deliberate Force, uh, NATO announced this operation to have airstrikes against Bosnian Serb positions. Now, these are, these are ethnic Serbs living in what today is called Republic of Serbsko, one of the autonomous, under the Dayton agreements, one of the autonomous parts of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So they started NATO airstrikes against these Bosnian positions. And uh, artillery attacks from UNPROFOR, the UN forces there. So 
you know, NATO just started bombing Serbia. And this gave the Clinton administration the excuse that they were looking for to uh, continue also the uh, argument for the continuation of NATO. And then why did the U.S. abruptly end the Bosnian War? Well, they had the Dayton agreements in Paris in 1995 because I think the U.S. intelligence had their eye on moving toward Serbian Yugoslavia in the province of Kosovo on the border with Albania to uh, focus on that as a key base. In fact, they established Camp Bond Steel uh, in Kosovo after, after, the, after the bombing of, of Serbia, of, of Belgrade, uh, in 1999. You write that the U.S. military contractor, Military Professional Resources Incorporated, trained both the drug-running Albanian KLA and the Croatian army to ethnically cleanse 350,000 Serbs out of the Krajina region of Croatia. What role did U.S. Ambassador to Croatia, Peter Galbraith, play in this ethnic cleansing? Well, Galbraith completely downplayed the fact that this was going on. Uh, his mandate was, was to portray the Croatians as, as the good guys and, and uh, cover up the ethnic cleansing that was going on there. So he, he played a a very not nice role. What can you tell us about the 79-day bombing of Belgrade and the precision bombing of the Chinese embassy offices of the Chinese military attaché? This, you write about, was uh, Clinton's, he called it Operation Noble Anvil. Yeah, they come up with these names, don't they? Uh, the... Clinton administration claimed, first of all, they created uh, something called the Kosovo Liberation Army, as you pointed out. And they created the Kosovo Liberation Army out of, essentially, the Kosovo drug mafia families, the clans. And uh, these were mafia networks that the CIA began arming and pointing the guns at, at the Serbs. Kosovo was an integral part of, of uh, well, of Yugoslavia, but of Serbian Yugoslavia. Many ethnic Serbs were living in Kosovo, along with ethnic Albanians. And uh, I think one of the reasons that the CIA wanted to, to uh, have this enclave in Kosovo was that the heroin that was being smuggled into the West from Afghanistan which the U.S. had just uh, managed to get involved with the Mujahideen in the, in the 1980s. The heroin came and was transmitted into Western Europe through the Kosovo Mafia that became the Kosovo Liberation Army. So it's, it's uh, really a, a dirty, dirty story. Well, now, Kosovo was always a part of Serbia. How was it that Bill Clinton was able to get away with a 79-day NATO bombing of Serbia. Now, that's uh, illegal, right, for, for NATO to do any such thing, as well as bomb Bosnia. That's against the NATO charter, isn't it? Yes, yes, but that didn't seem to bother Bill Clinton. 
what Clinton did was to manipulate the government of Germany under Gerhard Schroeder, but mainly the foreign minister, Joschka Fischer, who was the head of the Green Party. Nominally, the Green Party was a pacifist anti-war party in its, in its origins, but Joschka Fischer made a deal with Bill Clinton. And it's interesting, after he retired from government, Joschka Fischer was given a, a visiting professor position at Princeton University. But they claimed that the Serbs were doing ethnic cleansing of, of uh, Kosovo Albanians and that for humanitarian reasons, with the backing of Germany, so that the U.S. wouldn't be completely alone, that uh, the Clinton administration had to bomb Belgrade into submission. And the bombing, by the way, I was given a tour of Belgrade about five years ago, and they showed me the national police headquarters of what was Yugoslavia, and the U.S. bombed that headquarters with all the security records and everything, with depleted uranium weapons. And they didn't announce that, so that after the bombing stopped, when uh, Serb authorities went in to try to recover the records, they were poisoned immediately by the, the radiation from these depleted uranium weapons inside the building and, and just dropped, you know, dropped dead. So uh, this was really an ugly campaign. The, you mentioned the bombing of, of the Chinese embassy, and that, that was not a mistake of an old map that the Defense Mapping Agency had given, given to the Pentagon. This was deliberate because the Chinese were supporting Yugoslavia. They were, they, they were supporting Serbia, Milosevic, as were the Russians, by the way. Milosevic, the president of uh, Yugoslavia, was the, really the last holdout against the breakup of Yugoslavia. Now, the U.S. was determined to get rid of Milosevic. Even with this bombing, they were unable to to unseat him. Then you go on to write about the Belgrade coup d'etat of 2000. You write about a student-based opposition NGO, Washington trained and brought into being with the Serb name Otpor, or resistance, and that it was this operation that finally took down Milosevic. How did this work? Otpor became the template that was used by the U.S. government and their fake democracy. The U.S. government and its NGOs created an organization in Belgrade called OTPOR, that means resistance, and the NED, through the International Republican Institute, paid for several dozen leaders of OTPOR to come to the Hilton Hotel in Budapest in Hungary and attend training seminars there. So these were hand-picked leaders. They still work with the U.S. intelligence to this very day. And in fact, train students or student leaders in color revolutions all around the world. They, they made you know, quite a profitable little business out of, out of this. But this was one of the first applications of these techniques that had been devised by the RAND Corporation, by the CIA and, and uh, the State Department for getting rid of governments that they don't like. So Otpor had, had as its uh, logo 
the famous silhouette of a clenched fist. Everything that they did was given by uh, uh, Washington PR consultants for maximum effect. And uh, all of their tactics, uh, the hit and run protest demonstrations where the police would always uh, come and find that the demonstrators had left, that was all coordinated by uh, global uh, you know, satellite communication and so forth uh, before the days of Facebook. Later they used Facebook for this. So Otpor was the key U.S. Uh, vehicle for the Belgrade coup d'etat of 2000 and uh, was the first of these so-called color revolutions that uh, toppled an elected government. And uh, student leaders from Otpor had special intelligence helmets that were given to them by the U.S. with video screens, so they had an overview of the whole field. And, uh, you know, they had constant cell phone dialogue. The security forces of Milosevic were just overwhelmed. They'd never come into anything like this. So it made the authority appear to be impotent. And that's that's what uh, the whole Gene Sharp strategy uh, was aimed at. I believe you write in your book that uh, there was an election and somehow Milosevic lost this election and then was forced to resign by the uh, Serbian military. Is that right? Yes, the military was essentially blackmailed after this horrendous bombing and so forth. So uh, in 2001, they arrested Milosevic, not charging him with any crime officially, but it was U.S. pressure to extradite him to the International Criminal Tribunal in, in The Hague uh, that was set up especially for Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, on charges of war crimes, crimes against humanity. And, you know, at that point, Milosevic had no, no recourse when his own army turned on him. Well, now, Milosevic spent, what, five years incarcerated at The Hague and then was found dead under suspicious circumstances, oh. right? Yeah, but uh, it eliminated an embarrassing witness to the real NATO role in, in the breakup of Yugoslavia because Milosevic uh, knew exactly the perfidy and, and deception and lies and criminal acts that were done to destroy Yugoslavia. And finally, what do we know about Camp Bonsteel in Kosovo? How important is this U.S. base? Well, it's the second largest base, U.S. base in Europe, and it was established after the uh, kicking out of Milosevic and, and the splitting off of Kosovo by the United States. It's, Kosovo is not uh, recognized as an independent country by by many other countries, but the U.S. has recognized it. And the Camp Bon Steel gives the U.S. a crucial base, something like 7,000 soldiers and support people, to not only control Serbia, but a control point for the entire area of the Russian Black Sea fleet in, in, the, in the Black Sea, uh, in what is now Russian Crimea, and uh, the strategic reserves of oil in the Caspian Sea. So this gave the U.S. a very critical uh, military positioning in, in the heart of Europe and also gave uh, a strong argument uh, that the U.S. used to say, 
Europe can't manage on its own. We and NATO have to take care of the security of Europe. So NATO continued. William Engdahl, thank you so much. Thank you, Bonnie, and I enjoyed very much being on on your program again. I've been speaking with F. William Engdahl. Today's show has been Fake Democracy. The CIA and their NGOs target China and Yugoslavia in the 1990s. William Engdahl is an international political analyst, economist, and author. Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics, and the New World Order, Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, The Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the control of oil, food, and money. His newest book, Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance, is available through his website at williamengdahl.com. That's William com. Email him at info at williamengdahl.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Release. You dig me? You got me?